But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, or as some translations uh, have it, I don't know why it's so starkly different. Um, God is good, and I will tell of all your deeds, or as some translations have it, I will tell, I will see, I will tell of all of God's goodness. There is a a fairly new book out written by David Brooks, and David Brooks is an op-ed writer for the New York Times. And uh, Brooks uh, wrote this book called The Road to Character. And as the title suggests, he suggests that there is a movement, there is a movement that all of our lives should be undertaking, and that is a movement towards character, character development, becoming a person uh, marked by a moral and ethical backbone. In this book, he references, at the beginning of this book, he references a Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Joseph, who in 1965 wrote a book that was based on sort of a a different kind of twist on Genesis 1 and chapter 2. And he came up with the terminology, which is not new to us, but we as Protestants think of it slightly differently. But he comes up with this notion of there being within all of us an Adam 1 and an Adam 2. So for him, Genesis depicts an Adam 1 kind of nature and an Adam 2 kind of nature. So Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam 1, he goes on to describe, is a person who lives most of his or her life externally, that is projected out into the world where the desire is for the world to see this Adam 1 person. This person typically is career oriented, ambitious. It wants to build. This nature wants to create, wants to produce, wants to discover things, wants to make a recognizable mark on the world. Bottom line, this person desires a high status, and wants to win victories above all else. This person, typically, or this side of our humanity, desires the spotlight. We need recognition. 
And in order to do that, we try to figure out what it is in our respective cultures that will get us the attention we need. So we are, in a sense, about becoming people of the spotlight, and we play the games of what it takes to be in that spotlight. On the other side of that lingers the nature that he simply tags as Adam II. So Adam II is a different kind of nature. They live more internally. They live more, shall we say, reflectively. They want an inner character that is peaceful. They want to develop a strong sense of what is right and what is wrong. And they desire not just to do good, but far more critical is to be good. Lots of people can do good, but not everyone achieves the hope and goal of being good. These people, this part of our nature, focuses on sacrifice and serving others. Ones who live out life intimately and become, in the end, a far more integrated person, not with disparate parts to them, as though every part of them was somehow unrelated to another, but they desire to be integrated, unified, reflecting the same principles, the same character lived externally. But it's achieved internally. Brooks goes on through the rest of the book profiling people who are people who in some sense struggle with both of these natures, but where the Adam too dominates. So since we're honoring God this morning by honoring one of his servant leaders, I want to have you think about Grace Hazelar and decide if you see in her perhaps an Adam to nature. Many Christians, uh, and I'm sure there are many uh, among us here, have what is a so-called life verse. One that gives, I think, people focus and purpose. In Psalm 73, verse 28, is that life verse that has been uh, her guiding 
uh, principle, if you will, her guiding verse for the bulk of her life. So I want us to take a brief look at this verse to see if, in fact, we sense that it may, in fact, be tilting towards the Adam II nature of who we might be. So I just want to take a quick look, and if we can have that verse back, we'll just leave it up. I'm just going to take it uh, quickly, uh, a phrase or so at a time. So I want you to note, first of all, that it starts with, but as for me, I want to suggest to you that this is not the only occasion when the Bible uses freedom language. But as for me, I don't know about you, but as for me, I don't know how you're going to choose, but I'm going to choose this way. This is freedom language. There, there is sort of this opportunity to, to go one way or another. And so the writer here says, I don't know what direction you're going to go in, but I'm going in this direction. You can choose what you want to do, essentially, the psalmist is saying. But as for me, and that's reminiscent, I think, if you recall, from Joshua 24. I don't know what all of you are going to do. But I can tell you this, for me, my family, we're going with God. That's our decision. That's the direction in which we're choosing. And and there's a freedom to that. You have the freedom to choose. But what does this freedom take you to? Well, we see that the psalmist says, I desire to be near God. Some quick observations. First of all, I want to suggest that it takes a certain kind of person to say this. It takes, I think, a unique person, a unique nature to say, I desire to be near God. Why? Because I think subtly the suggestion is an acknowledgement on the part of the psalmist who says, I cannot do life on my own. I can't do it on my own terms. In fact, in order for me to get life right, in this case, I need help from the outside. Our culture is built and destined to continue to look inside, internally, for life solutions to life's crises. The psalmist says, no, I don't think I can do this on my own. Collectively, we can't do this on our own. So it takes a unique person to say, You know, whatever I am and whatever I become, if there is any good in it, if there is any excellence in it, if there is any nobility, trust me when I tell you I didn't get here alone. I didn't get here by pulling up my own bootstraps. None of us are self-made. We just think 
we are. And to the degree we are self-made, we are gods to ourselves. So when you talk about self-made men and women, realize that you're talking about demigods. Well, none of us are self-made. And the psalmist recognizes it, says, I can't do this alone. I need help from the outside. It's Adam II kind of language. And this outside influence, in the psalmist's case, needs to be positive. It needs to be good. And God is good. A second thing we might observe is that this person makes absolutely no attempt to hide or camouflage the fact that it is God's company that he wishes to keep. There's an old saying. There's an old saying that says, we are known for the company we keep. It's true for your life. It's true for my life. If you want to know more about me, or if I want to get to know you better, part of the way that we do that is to observe who you hang with. And the psalmist says, look, I want to be found hanging, if you will, with God. I want more than anything to be in his company. That's uh, central to my being. A third thing, notice that he says, I want to be near God. He isn't saying, I want to be God, but near God. Adam 1's instinct is to be God. Adam 2's instinct is to be like God, which, again, suggests that the psalmist knows his desire should not end up being some sort of charismatic superman doing life on his or her own terms. But rather, there is a, there is a gain to be had by simply being near God. And then lastly, he uses the word desire. Not I want, like I want a glass of milk or a cookie, but I desire. And the word desire suggests an overwhelming longing that is the motivation to take action. Now, clearly we can have desires that are wrong, that are destructive, that are not good. But in this context, it's a desire to be near God, this God of goodness. And we remember the words of Psalm 37, uh, 37, delight yourself in the Lord or in the Lord's goodness, and he will give to you the desires of your heart. What's the desire of your heart? To be 
to be delighting yourself in the Lord. It's kind of a elliptical. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What should be the desire of your heart? To delight in the Lord. And it just keeps going around. That's the basis of this writer's reflection. So, going on in the text, what fuels this desire and motivates the writer to desire nearness to God so much? The last part of the verse says it all. Here's the payoff. I get to witness what God is up to And then I get this indescribable joy of being able to talk about God's goodness to others. In other words, what the payoff is for the psalmist is that he gets a front row seat to what God is doing. He gets to see God in motion. That God is not some passive, distant entity, but is ever-present and ever on the move. The scriptures remind us that, that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's always on the go. But we are not always, in a sense, ready to see God and hear God in motion. I get to be an eyewitness to what God is up to. That, bottom line, is the, really the essence of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is simply God's movement in the person of Jesus Christ up close and personal. So for those of us who slumber and sleep, in reading the Gospels, you get to see the nature of God himself and the kinds of things that matter to him. And once you discover what matters to God, what matters to Jesus, you'll know what it means to follow Jesus. Our ambition, as Augustine said, should be to learn to love the things that God loves. And that's what the psalmist's reward is, to discover those things by being an eyewitness to God's activity. Many Christians, and believe me when I tell you this, I've been around Christians for 68 years now. And over that span of time, I have found a lot of Christians who can get to the end of their life without ever having seen God. Never never reported an eyewitness account of seeing God's movement. They appear listless, they appear sightless, they appear spiritually comatose. 
spiritually handicapped or spiritually challenged. But that's not the psalmist's case. The psalmist doesn't want to get into every time when he meets other believers to end up talking about Adam one kind of topics. So what about those cubs? Or what about that GOP debate? Or what about a myriad of other things? Rather, the Adam two wants to say, you know, <laughs> this would be the case of my wife and I. We went to the Brookfield Zoo yesterday. <laughs> well, you have nothing better to do? And we saw God in motion. So, the Adam one nature, I think, desires to crowd out the Adam two nature. But in grace, we see the Adam two nature winning out. I think grace, at some point along the line, really embraced Psalm 73, verse 28. And I think it did a number on her by turning around and embracing her. Frederick Diekner defines vocation Vocation, coming from the Latin vocal, to call out, to call out, vocal, vocation, to call out, in this case, to be called out, to be set apart by God for something. He says, vocation is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep needs not superficial needs, where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. If Grace was going to discover the world's deep needs, she was going to have to stay near to God, as Psalm 73 says. She was going to have to stay tight with Jesus to figure out what those deep needs were. Described briefly, I will say there are three mornings in the life of grace, some of which you probably know more about than I do. And what I have to say won't do justice to grace, but I'll let grace and you fill in the gaps. Three mornings. Morning one. And so it happened that one morning, Grace woke up in a place where very little reminded her of the world she had lived in for so long. She woke up under African skies, surrounded by a dark-skinned people who lived under a canopy of poverty, 
fatigue, despair, and death in the aftermath of the reign of terror and evil of Idi Amin. Uganda was decimated. This one-time pearl of Africa had lost its luster as a country and now was trying to find its way back to get closer to Eden than to hell. Several months after Grace arrives, she could not have possibly imagined encountering what was coming her and the world's way. Coming with the fierceness of a plague. HIV AIDS became the disease version, the disease version of Edi Amin. Killing indiscriminately and laying siege on entire villages and families. Just decimated, wiped out by this disease. And Grace must have asked herself more than once, what have I gotten myself into? Because it is so clear, knowing what we know now and what we know about back then, she was in way over her head. There was nothing in her textbooks. There was nothing in the conversations she was having with medical people here or having with the faith community here that could have prepared her. What in the world have I gotten myself into? But the truth is, she didn't so much get herself into this as God did. He's the one who got her into this. Once God heard her say, I want to be near you, God said, oh, is that true? So does that mean where I am, you'll want to draw close to me there? Not thinking it through, she said yes. One morning, she woke up and said, so this is what being near to God means. She found out, as for me, I desire to be near God, and this is where God simply wanted to be, in the midst of poverty and suffering. These are, these are standardly, typically, throughout the Gospels, the place where you find God. You find Jesus in the midst of suffering and poverty. Here she saw the world's deep needs and discovered over her lifetime her deep gladness. And here her Adam II nature became fleshed out as she watched God move about in this hurting place. For the rest of her life, she would tell others of God's
good work among the people of Uganda. Morning two. Later, after waking up many mornings in Uganda, she woke up on a morning to find herself in Cary, Mississippi. Not entirely different from what she encountered in Uganda. And here again, the marks of poverty and disease and infant mortality had to find a way of life stripped of hope and healing. But Jesus had somehow moved into this neighborhood. And Jesus took on the form of the Cary Christian Center, which wanted simply to reverse the tide of death and despair. And under the auspices of the Luke Society, again, Grace must have asked her on more than one occasion, what have I gotten myself into? Until, again, she remembered her life verse, I desire to be near God. And where God is, I want to be found there. I want to be in that company. I want to be in that movement. If she was intent about nearing, being near to God, this is where God was up to something good. Being near to God often means being near hard places, difficult places, demanding places. And those places are available to you and I on a daily basis. It's not a suggestion that you need to be in Cary. It's not a suggestion that you need to go with the serve group to Mexico. It's not that you have to be in Uganda. Sometimes difficult places are right under your roof. The troubled marriage, the troubled child, the hurting neighbor, a colleague who is in despair, or a colleague who's been found out. These are difficult places. These are difficult moments. But that's where God is. Brokenness, despair, hopelessness are Jesus' specialties. This is what he's best at. A world in crisis. And crises sometimes sneak up right to our front doorsteps. But don't kid yourself. God has shown up before you ever even thought about showing up to the reality of the crisis. And that's where, if you want to be near God, you got to be. And then there was the third morning. And on the third morning, Grace woke to find herself facing a group of nursing students and nurses who were sensing in their hearts something indescribable, but it's something that came akin to saying, I'm not quite certain what I need to be doing, but I want to do something difficult, something hard. And maybe they're even ruminating about the fact that Spiritually, they want to be closer to God. And along 
comes grace. Oh, so you desire to be near to God. Are you serious? You have to be kidding, right? Let's talk about this again. What is it that you're wondering about? And in the conversation, I want to be near God, and I want my life to be about something. Well, says Grace, if you're sure of that, I've got something to tell you. You know, I woke up one morning in Uganda, and she bore witness to God's movement, to God's workings. And so she labored with Nurses Christian Fellowship, who was looking for someone who had firsthand experience in witnessing God's good activity among those with deep needs. Grace stepped forward, motivated by a deep sense of her Adam II nature, a nature that was not about self, but about others. So she told nursing students and nurses what she had seen working alongside of God in challenging places. She challenged nurses to use their nursing knowledge and skills either domestically or abroad. Thousands of nurses have embraced Grace's desire to be near to God and to share in the good things God is doing and then to tell of his goodness. This, you see, is really Grace's legacy. Whatever healing she thought she may have done, God had done through her, and she bore witness to that. Today, interestingly, this is the fourth morning she woke up, and she finds herself in what could be, could be the best morning of her life. Why? Because she soaks herself, she immerses herself even deeper now than ever because she's going into a most scary part of her life. Don't wish for it. It's called retirement. Now she's free, in a sense, to say no. But what if she wants to continue to be near God? Where will God take her this morning? I think all of us live in the tension of the two natures, the self-preservation nature and the preservation of others. It's either about us or it's about somebody else. Brooks writes towards the end of his book, success often leads to life's greatest failures, moral and otherwise. But failure, he says, on the other hand, leads often to life's greatest success. And what is that success? The greatest success, according to Brooks, on the road to character is to be defined by humility. Psalm 73 suggests that if you want 
if you want to morph into becoming more of an Adam too, your journey needs to embrace Psalm 73. As the Gospels remind us, in order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself in order to finally find God. You'll never find God without losing yourself. The great paradox of the Gospels. So, thanks, Grace. And thank you, on behalf of this church, for allowing this church to journey with you through their prayer and through their financial support in order that God might reach the world's deep needs through you. And thank you, Grace, for arousing our desire to be closer to God.